Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. You've just uh, done, uh, I guess at the tail end of 2016, like a road show with Ben Hall around Australia. Is that right? Yes. What was that experience uh, like, kind of, you know, uh, taking the film on the road? It's something I've, I've kind of often fantasized about and feel like it would be just an amazing experience. Yeah, it's, um, it was good. We spent about three weeks on the road with Ben Hall um, in starting around the mid, middle of November. Uh, look, it, it can be a very rewarding experience because um, you are – it's kind of the, the fun bit of filmmaking. Everything up until that point is really just a lot of stress and anxiety and hard work and, <laughs> and waiting. So this is – it's the one time, I think, where I get the most joy out of the, the movie uh, when you actually get to present it to the audience and have everyone sit down and watch it and you get to then see their reactions and listen to their feedback and things like that. I think that's probably the yeah. So I think it was uh, it was definitely a rewarding time. Matthew Holmes began his career as a stop motion animator working at Blockbuster Video. Through a self-funding model, he created a plethora of short films. His first feature film, Twin Rivers, a TV series called Crooked and has just released his Australian epic western, The Legend of Ben Hall. If you happen to be in Melbourne, you can catch The Legend of Ben Hall this coming Thursday, March 16th at the Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne. Tickets are still available. You can find more information on getting said tickets and keep up to date on all things Ben Hall, including DVD and Blu-ray release details, over on their Facebook page and at thelegendofbenhall.com. And for this full episode download, the entire back catalogue of Coming Up Next podcasts, links to subscribe, rate and review the show, head to comingupnext.com.au. And that's all I have to say. Was making films and this kind of idea of the roadshow, I mean, it's such an old school idea. Was this something that you always wanted to do? Uh, I saw that you actually started your career as a stop motion animator. Um, so I wonder if, if filmmaking is something and filmmaking in this way is something that's always kind of been bubbling away for you. Uh, well, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker since I was about 13. I knew that was the path that I wanted to take in life. Stop motion for me <clears throat> came out of my love of, um, visual effects and it gave me a, um, a, a platform to, uh, to really concentrate on and, and have a potential job and career. Um, and that's, and, and I had an interest in that sort of technical detail sort of things, you know, to do with film and um, making things come to life. And animation was a way to do that. Um, and even being an animator, while I was pursuing it um, sort of professionally, I always knew in the back of my mind and, and was even doing it in my spare time, I always knew I wanted to ultimately be a live action filmmaker. So it was all, yeah, that, that was always the, um, the intent. And the intent of the road show, taking the film uh, around the place, especially into regional New South Wales, 
I think that was very much um, because the film itself, because it deals with history that is very much tied to those areas that we visited, that was one of the reasons that we did it, perhaps more so than another film would do. Um, I heard it was one of the most extensive tours of a, an Australian film for quite a while, uh, where we take the cast, crew and director around. Um, and um, I think it's because of the, the actual history and the story of Ben Hall has so much significance to those areas that we visited. So we knew there was a very strong audience in those regions. Do you remember the first time that you made a film or you wrote something that that kind of uh, first experience or first taste as a as a 13-year-old or maybe it was even before that kind of gave you that experience of doing this thing that you now do for a living? It's a bit of a hazy time. Uh, I think my earliest memory... Uh, is actually um, finding an 8mm camera that at my my dad's school that he used to work at and uh, wishing that I could make it work and playing pretend with the camera and wishing that it could, yeah, wishing that I could take pictures and with it. Um, and um, this is really in the, you know, this was in the late, mid to late 80s. Um, so home video cameras were just starting to become a thing. And, uh, and I remember getting... Um, and I remember as at that early age of, of about 13 wanting to make a Ned Kelly film. I remember that was a very strong thing in me that it was to make this Australian Western. And um, then I got an opportunity to get hold of uh, video cameras through my dad's school because our family couldn't afford one, but my dad's school could. And so he would bring it home on weekends for me to play around with. And I would spend all week preparing for whatever I was going to make on the weekend. So I would usually get toys and um, things like that and set up a set in the in the rumpus room and then spend a weekend filming and things like that. Uh, and I think the most joy I got out of it was usually, well, apart from making it, was then showing my end result to friends and family and have them all be wowed and interested and so on. So I think that's probably my earliest memory. And while you were at school, was this something that you were kind of obsessing by? Were you delving into film? Were you... Uh, or was it something that was kind of it was a hobby that you would do on the weekends? I um I, it was absolutely a, something I did on weekends. It was, it was what I thought and dreamt and slept and ate. You know, was was my move. You know, what movie I could make. And I just from year ten, uh, nine or ten onwards, I would make animation projects, my my art projects. Um, art was the uh, the subject that I you know concentrated in. You know, you, when I was in year, year 12, you had like five subjects. Art was the one I threw everything. I threw 150% into that and then would always do my art, you know, my animation because it required so many artistic areas. You know, it encompassed uh, sculpture, photography, uh, model building, all these different things that art, you know, could do. So I just turned the hobby into, into my schoolwork. And then I did my schoolwork, you know, over and above. And so art was the, the, uh, the, you know, the subject I excelled in and all the other subjects kind of suffered because I didn't care about those. Um, <laughs> I can relate to I, that. I sort of just, I just scraped by on those ones and did the bare, bare, bare minimum and, um, and, and threw everything into art. And then uh, when I left school, I did an animation project for year 12. And when I left school, I didn't, um, I didn't have any intentions of going to film school or or university or anything. I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't be bothered doing any more education stuff. I just wanted to get out and make movies, 
and I'd already got um, some work experience and, 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 a, and a casual job offer at an animation company on the back of the, the, um, the animation that I had done uh, in high school. So I already sort of got my toe in the door as soon as I left school. My, I had a toe in the door of the professional world um, of, of animation. And so for the next, oh, crikey, you know, the next five or six years, I made my own films and just kept in touch with this animation company, did a little bit of work for them and just, you know, slowly clawed my way in and um, ultimately became a full-time employee of that company and um, worked on animations and television commercials and short films for over 10 years there. That's amazing. A lot of these films that you were making in that kind of five or six year period, were they all self-funded? Yeah, they were totally self-funded. I got myself a job in a video store, so I was still close to movies. <laughs> and um, Classic. I worked in the video store for four years, and um, that gave me just enough money to pay to make my movies. Was it a uh, was it a and, chain video store? Yeah, it was Blockbuster. Ah, Blockbuster. Yeah, so I worked at Blockbuster, and uh, that gave me the the money I needed. I stayed at home and I made animation. I made my own animated films in Dad's shed. So. Yeah, I spent through, just threw all my money into doing that, and um, that just lasted for a number of years. And I, I had every, you know, I had parents and people all just saying, uh, "What are you going to do? You know, you, you can't do this for the rest of your life. When are you going to get a real job? You know, when are you going to when are you going to grow up and settle down and make a make start? You know, be, get a be normal." And I didn't want to do that. You know, I had pressures of girlfriends wanting to maybe get married and all this sort of stuff. And I just, no, I just wanted to make movies and I knew that's all I really wanted to do. And and I did have the opportunity to actually become full-time at Blockbuster and actually become a manager and start climbing the, you know, the ladder of Blockbuster video. Or I could take a one-year apprenticeship at the animation company that I was that I was at, and I decided to take the the one year apprenticeship that paid virtually nothing, rather than go on and have the full time job and all that sort of thing. So right from the very beginning, I was I knew that was my path. That's where I wanted to go. And despite all naysayers and you know better thinking, not this was the path I wanted to take. It seems like a no brainer uh, to me. That kind of that that fork in the road. I mean, for someone who has as much passion about filmmaking as as you do. Yeah, I think, well, you've got the passion for filmmaking, and it is, it is a no-brainer. Um, but to everyone else, it didn't seem like, the, it, it, it seems like, you know, the uncertain thing because, you know, money, security, job, house, mortgage, all that. And, uh, yeah, following and do making films like this is not going to, and, you know, trying to carve out a, a career in filmmaking is not going to be able to give you that, uh, not, not with any um, kind of security but I ended up becoming a full-time employer of that animation company, um, of which they didn't have, have very many full-time staff. They had mostly casual staff, but I ended up becoming uh, full-time and uh, was able to, you know, get a mortgage and all that sort of thing. But that lasted only for that. That lasted for you know five or six years uh, working at there, and then. Um, but I actually found that I was going a bit stir crazy there. Well, it was a, it was a good job and. I was working on some, you know, great commercials with some great people and and things like that. It still wasn't filmmaking, and it still wasn't my my movies. And so uh, during my time there, I um I started making a, another feature film, a live action feature film, and it took me four years to film, two years to post in post production, and I paid for it all myself. And at the end of it, I had a 110 minute um, live action feature drama called Twin Rivers. 
and um, that was my f- technically my first feature that you know had a very small release DVD um, ran on Foxtel for a few years and so on and that's pretty much it's that was all its life that's all it was and then I just knew after that I couldn't stay in that company anymore I had to keep going I had to break free of that get rid of the mortgage get rid of all that stuff that was pinning me down and, and just keep aiming for you know uh, becoming a professional filmmaker how did you I guess you kind of answered this question then but how did you transition from the stop motion animation into making something like Twin Rivers what was was it just a matter of well this is what I've always wanted to do did you feel like you were kind of stuck in a um I guess in a pigeonhole so to speak as a stop motion animator uh, or was it just a matter of this is what I'm doing I didn't really consider myself pigeonholed or never felt pigeonholed as a stop motion animator. I think that I was a filmmaker and that's a, I always considered myself a filmmaker and it was just a broad canvas and stop motion animation. And, you know, it's just another, um, it's just another medium of filmmaking. And I learned a lot about filmmaking being a stop motion animator. I think one of the things that being a stop motion animator does is it really makes you, you have to have a lot of patience and it really makes you stop and really think about what you're doing and making everything in the frame matter and making every action that your character is, that you're animating, making him do, you know, you, you're telling a story always and making 30 second commercials, you have to learn to be, tell a story quickly and efficiently. And, uh, you, um, it, it makes you pay a lot of attention to detail. So really when it came, it, it didn't feel like there was any really transition for, to go to making live action, um, uh, a live action drama. I'd been making live action films with my brothers and sisters from the age of 13, along with um, animation films. There was never a point where I wasn't doing both, but it wasn't until Twin Rivers that I decided that I was going to really be doing it properly um, and not just sort of in a mucking around sense. And um, that's... Uh, yeah, so it really was sort of a—it's almost a, a, a seamless transition, really, for me. It didn't—it didn't feel any different. Up until uh, Ben Hall, and probably including to an extent Ben Hall, it seems to me as though you really put your money where your mouth is, quite literally, self-financing your own work. As you said, you know, all the stuff you were making after you finished school and Twin Rivers—it's all self-financed. Um, and you even made a, um, uh, a little TV series uh, that was financed independently kind of by yourself and by the cast. Is this something that, I mean, what, what kind of inspired you to do that? Is it just that you want to get things done at all costs? Is it that you feel like these are stories that need to be told? This is something that you want to do and you won't be kind of, um, you won't be held by funding agencies or private investors what what's the kind of mentality behind that the mentality is this is what i want to do uh how do i how do i get it done and it really was my biggest priority i tried for many years to get funding bodies involved in my work and i've only really had one success where i got some post-production money to finish one of the animations that i did and aside from that i've really I, I, I learned through a lot of bitter experience and a lot of disappointment that the film funding bodies weren't going to help me. 
Uh, they didn't help me with Twin Rivers when I approached. There's an interesting story around that. They just didn't help me with any of my short films. They didn't help me with any with Crooked. They didn't help me with uh, any of the feature film projects that I brought across to them. And at the time, I was living in Adelaide in South Australia. So this is the South Australian Film Corporation. And so I learned fairly quickly that um, I, I had no... I had no access to um, producers or investors or finances or any of that or studios, nothing. No, I had no way in and I had no way into film, into get the, um, <clears throat> what do you call them, the, the government funding bodies to help me. So I, uh, the only option is to just do it myself. So, I, yeah, I did put my money where my mouth was and found others who were willing to do the same in the case of Crooked. Um, just to go and get get it done because I just could I just didn't like sitting around and waiting for someone else to give me the permission to do it or to give me the opportunity to do it um, or the money or whatever it, it just was going to take forever or it was just never going to happen so it just becomes about a problem solving process how do I get this made without that help okay what are my options now and um, yeah you just get resourceful and you um, you come up with another way. What happened with the with Twin Rivers? You said there was an interesting story. Yeah, the um, at the time I was at the film corporation. They didn't really care about the film that I was making. I'd taken them some footage and stuff, and they really just sort of shrugged me off and didn't say anything. Um, and but there was someone, uh, Rolf Tahir, um, the Australian director, um, was working had a, he had his office in the in the South Australian Film Corporation, and um, someone who was helping me with Twin Rivers took me to Rolf one day and showed Rolf what I was doing. And um, Rolf uh, was very complimentary and asked how, how you know, how I was going to get it finished and so on because I really I'd pretty much shot the thing, but I just needed help with post-production. Um, and his partner, uh, Molly, who's also a filmmaker, um, became aware of it and she was working for the film corporation and she brought me in for a meeting and she said, you know, you're, you know, this film looks great, but we can see you need help, but we can't help you because we don't have any um, program. We don't have a post-production funding program or anything like that um, to help you. But she said, because of your project and, you know, other projects like yours, we've, you know, we see that there's really a need for this sort of thing because a lot of people are shooting their own features, but they need help in the post-production. So they went away and they actually developed a, um, they actually developed a grant that I could apply for. Um, so that went through the stages and then a few months later she kind of contacted me back and she said, we've got the grant program all up and ready, so apply. And so I was the first one to apply because it was because of my film that they created the, the program. And then I applied and then they rejected my application. <laughs> God. So, um, and now that what that was not Molly's decision. Molly left the film corporation uh, very shortly afterwards, I'm not sure if it was related, but she did, um, and she moved on. And um, but that's what they did. I um, that experience made me pretty skeptical of, of you know government funding bodies, and so I I really just sort of thought, well, you know what, you know I, I won't worry about them anymore. I've got to make a career happen without them, and uh, that's sort of been how I've been operating since. How did you manage to kind of support yourself while you were? Because you know, as you said, Twin Rivers was a four-year process, and Ben Hall was a two-year process. How have you managed to kind of support yourself while creating these uh, these independent feature films? Well, I was working pretty much 
full time for the majority of Twin Rivers, which is why it took four years because I was filming it on weekends and holidays, and it, um, and it took me two years to put together. So it was actually six years, six year project. And then, um, but I was working full time for all of that, and even with Crooked, I was working full time as well. So that's really that was supporting me and paying for these things. And then um, uh, come 2010, um, Crooked didn't didn't fly. That didn't we didn't actually finish it. We couldn't get um, a network interested in the idea, and and, the, and and it sort of just fizzled out. We never really finished it. And 2010 came along, big change in my life, and I decided to um, sell sell the house, get rid of the mortgage, and move to Melbourne, pursue filmmaking. No more full time job. No more. And nothing slowing me down like that, um, and so I came to Melbourne with that intent uh, of basically I'm going to become a filmmaker or bust. I'm not going to tie myself down to any full-time jobs anymore that hold me down. And I just started, you know, serving coffee, working at the counter at JB Hi-Fi, um, and doing that sort of thing, just part-time jobs. Um, I got myself a, a, a job at a petrol station, and I did the graveyard shift um, a few nights a week, and just. Uh, concentrated solely on writing scripts, developing projects, um, and getting um, and trying to get another feature film off the ground. And for three years, I tried to get um, a feature film off the ground. Uh, I had the script, I had um, everything ready to go. I had producers. Greg McLean was an executive producer, and and Odin's Eye were involved. We had lots of cast ready to sign up. The whole movie was storyboarded. We just couldn't find investors for it. Just couldn't get it off the ground. And um, out of frustration of, you know, after three years of being on this endless hamster wheel of trying to get the film up and me working in a petrol station, I just decided that um, I was going to uh, make, a, make start making some short films just to basically kill some time and, you know, keep the, keep the pilot light burning and for the love of filmmaking. Made a short film that was fun, decided to make another one, and that's when I decided, well, why don't I take the um, the last 15 pages of this great big Ben Hall script that I've been writing for years and crowdfund it. So I turned to crowdfunding as, a, as, a, as an option and um, that's how the legend of Ben Hall was born. I was watching on YouTube, uh, there's a fantastic behind-the-scenes uh, documentary that you've had made about the process of making Ben Hall. And one of the things that struck me about that process was the kind of the evolution of the the film from like you say 15 minutes short to 40 minutes short to feature film and how the, how Ben Hall and I suppose any project that you're making independently kind of takes on a life of its own once you put it out into the world it's that simple process of actually acting upon what you want to do or what you want to create that actually can uh, spawn and inspire a whole life that you may have never anticipated. Absolutely. Um, once you start something, um, inevitably other people will, will, will jump on board if you're passionate about it and if you've got a good network of people around you. Um, you can you know, inspire others to get involved and get them you know, get them interested, and and absolutely, it starts to take on its own, starts to take on its own life. Um, and you know, in Ben Hall, we got very lucky with um, a lot of things uh, that happened. Um, you know, the film did seem like it wanted to grow, 
um, much bigger than we anticipated it would. I certainly did not expect it when I started it. I had uh, not in my wildest dreams that I think it was going to become a feature film. I thought maybe it might help me one day get a feature film off the ground many years down the track, uh, but never did I think it would become um, a feature. How much did you end up raising on uh, on or through crowdfunding um, platforms? We our first Kickstarter campaign, we were trying to raise seventy five thousand, and we raised um, about one hundred and twelve thousand. Wow, that's amazing! Um, so we went over, which was great. Which was why we decided to expand to the hundred and uh, sorry to a forty minute because we had more money to play with, which means we could make it longer. And then we thought we had a chance of perhaps selling it to television as an hour special or something. Um, and then when it came, uh, and then we did another, we did another Indiegogo campaign uh, shortly afterwards to, to raise a bit more, but we only raised just over 15,000 for that. So, um, so all together, all together is nearly 130,000. What what advice would you have to people who want to crowdfund? It sounds to me as though you always have a strategy, a lot like a longer term strategy than just let's make the film. You know, you say in you mentioned in there having one eye on, you know, if you're turning it into a forty minute film, it could be a one hour TV special that you could shop around. So I suppose what advice would you have uh, in terms of? literally the, the the campaign but also in terms of being strategic um well look i think i think as a filmmaker starting off you've got to be extremely strategic uh it is consistent and constant problem solving that's what filmmaking is especially at this level you are just it is nothing but um i used to tell people when they used to say what's a filmmaker being what's it like being a filmmaker um, and I used to tell people, being a filmmaker is like being in prison. You are stuck in prison and you've got to get out, and that's what it's mean. A filmmaker not making a film is like a prisoner in a square room, and, the, and all you do all day is think about escape, which is like you thinking about how do I crack out and make this movie. And so all you do is sit in that cell and you problem-solve your escape you try every possibility, you look in every crack, and you just constantly sit and do nothing but think about how you can get out of that cell. And that's what filmmaking was like for me for many of those years. I just constantly was plotting my escape or plotting the way that I could crack into filmmaking um, in this way. And um, so you, I think you become, you very much become a, st- a strategist. And then, well, the way, again, strategy-wise, I mean, I did a lot of research on what makes crowdfunding work, so I can't take credit for everything. But one thing I decided from the very beginning was if I was going to try to get $75,000, the worst thing I could do was treat the project like a charity, which is what is the biggest mistake I see in most people that crowdfund films. They just go, hey, I'm going to crowdfund a film. Can people put 20 bucks in and, you know, help me? And they're treating it like a charity, and that's not going to work. It doesn't work. Um, I tried to treat it like a business proposition that I was going to create a product that people wanted to see and I had to get people excited and invested into that product. I had to make them want it so badly that they were going to put their money in to ensure that it happened and then they were going to encourage others to do the same. So I had to find a way or find something that made them 
actually want this as much as I wanted it uh, and didn't treat it like a charity. It was just a total business exchange, which is why I really concentrated on making really good uh, rewards for people that put in and uh, demonstrated what those rewards would look like visually. Um, it concentrated a lot on the visual cam- on the on the campaign from a visual perspective, so people could see what it is that they were going to get, not me just telling them what they were going to get. And I think that's what I sort of attribute it to. And then I went out and found the audience for the film. Um, I didn't just sort of put it up on put it up on the uh, Kickstarter and then jump, sit back on Facebook and then just sit sit and twiddle my thumbs and post it a couple times a day or something. I actually went out and drove into New South Wales from Melbourne and put up posters and walked into pubs and spoke to people and spoke to uh, councils and groups and, uh, you know, you know, reenactment societies. I just got up, got into anyone's, um, into any network I thought where people would like this film and, and just, you know, handed out brochures and business cards and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, you have to be very, you have to very much be that strategist. Yeah. When it came to actually making the film, and I mean, how how did you how did this story sort of come to you? I was watching, as I said, I was watching that behind the scenes uh, doco with my my flatmate, and she was she was saying to me, "Who is this guy? Not you, as in who is Ben Hall? Why have I never heard of him? You know, we're both Australian. We both grew up in Australia. And to be fair, I hadn't I wasn't really aware of Ben Hall either prior to learning about your film." So how did you kind of come across this story of this um, of, of this guy who, by all rights and merits, should be as well known as Ned Kelly? Because, as I said earlier, I had that – I always wanted to make that Ned Kelly film, and that came out in 2002, 2003, as I was in the middle of filming Twin Rivers. And um, I was disappointed because I thought, oh, damn, they've, they've gone ahead and made the remake because we hadn't seen a Ned Kelly film since the 70s. And – I was a bit disappointed that someone had sort of beat me to it. Uh, and as I was writing, um, a few years later, I was writing um, the script that I tried to get off the ground that I couldn't for three years. Um, I was writing that with another writer in Adelaide, and I told him, you know, I told him that I always wanted to make a, a Bush Ranger film about Ned Kelly, and I was disappointed they'd already done it. And that's when he said, well, there's more interesting Bush Rangers around there because he knew a bit about Bush Ranger history. And he said, look up, um, you know, look up about Ben Hall. And that's when I um, I did that. I just jumped straight onto Wikipedia and, and looked him up, and um, that's how I discovered him. And I didn't know anything about him until you know I was into my early thirties. <clears throat> so I was, um, yeah, that's how I discovered him. Much not by accident, but um, you know, and and I was like you, I was surprised why I had never heard of him before. Um, and it really, I learned that it, there's a bit of a generational gap. You know, my grandpa knows who Ben Hall is. My dad vaguely remembers Ben Hall, vaguely, and my generation and every other generation below really does not know. So there was this, there was a, there was a loss, there was a gap that was created somewhere in there. Uh, just culturally, his story was sort of forgotten and stopped being told and left behind, and and Ned Kelly's just kept getting told and retold over and over again. And and Ben Hall, like many of um, Australian historical characters and figures, have all just been forgotten. And Ned Kelly remains, you know, because of his the armour gimmick and, you know, because he was very politically motivated. There was um, He's the one that's endured and everyone else seems to have been forgotten. So do you feel a certain amount of responsibility to make this film 
historically accurate or do you just kind of take the foundational elements of the story and then dramatize i would feel um not not um specific to ben hall but if i was adapting any true story i would feel a very i would feel a, a great responsibility to to tell it uh, factually um that's the point of telling a true story um i personally don't see any point in telling a true story that isn't true um that that to me doesn't make sense which is why i get frustrated with biopics that steer from a steer away from the history i mean you've always got to change things dram- dramatize things condense things that's that's understandable but to actually violate history or you know to do things that were just completely unrealistic and then tag true story on it i just i just don't think that's the way to do it um that's what that's what fiction's for that's why people create fictitious characters and that's fine too but just don't claim it as a true story and i and i love the true story so much i didn't think it needed any fixing so i uh, i actually thought that the fascination of it for me was that it was all true uh that's where the interesting thing lies and that's why i wanted to keep it um very factually accurate and fought very hard every step of the way to to maintain that accuracy so once you've got the script in hand and you've got the money that you raised through crowdfunding there was still a two-year process of actually creating the film from start to finish in terms of when you mm. released it at the end of 2016 what was the what was the process for you of of making this film uh, it must have been an incredibly rewarding but an exceptionally challenging period of time in your life yes it was the most grueling and most difficult thing i've ever done um it leaves any other film project that i worked on or any other job that I've ever had, it leaves it for dead. Uh, it definitely was the hard, It was the most difficult thing I've ever done, and probably the most trying time of my life making Ben Hall. Absolutely, uh, because it was um, we were trying to do something so ambitious for such a small amount of money. I mean, even when we managed to get some private investment to extend it to a feature film, um, it still wasn't very much. We were still um, having to pull a rabbit out of a hat, so we were constantly fighting against all the all the elements of you know no budget, um, you know lack of resources, um, lack of crew, um, cast. Um, you know it was again you're constantly problem solving, so it was very very arduous. Um, I was able to take I was able to get a, a, a sal a, you know a very very small salary for for doing the movie. Um, but it really wasn't very much, and so, you know, life, you know, life was difficult financially. Uh, a lot of my savings got swallowed up into the film. Still, I was ultimately still spent my own money on Ben Hall. Uh, I didn't even bother counting how much, but you know, my own savings definitely did go into it, even just by living off those savings um, at, at periods of time. And um, then when the film, the film actually completed in mid. 2016 and I didn't actually have and there was no more money and and I had to wait for four to five months for the film to actually come out um so I had to try to find something to do in that time and I was picking up a lot of jobs here and there and and so on and just trying to stay stay alive and um, I actually started creating Ben Hall merchandise to sell on the tour in order to keep me 
and and that's what I've been living off for the last couple of months, and it will keep me going for another month, just selling Ben Hall merchandise. And I started doing that knowing that I could sell it on the tour and that could be a potential source of income for me just to keep me writing the next installments into the new year. So again, I'm, that's always that forward planning. How am I going to keep myself going? Um, so I don't have to go back to the petrol station, back to the JB Hi-Fi counter. And you live in a lot of uncertainty. You really do live, and I have lived for you know a couple of years now, just really not knowing what the next where my money's going to come from in the next couple of months. And I just trust that it, something will come up. What were some of the biggest uh, challenges in a kind of day-to-day context? I suppose taking finances out of the equation for, for a moment, although I'm sure that was easily the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge. But what were some of, the more, uh, yeah, some of the more day-to-day challenges and how did you overcome them? You know, we only shot the feature. I mean, we'd done three weeks on the short film and then we shot another... Uh, seven weeks on the feature and you know those shooting weeks of course are challenging because you know you early start late finish um non-stop go 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 all pressure on uh and you know the typical day-to-day of any film set and any director on a film production i had all of that the day-to-day of well you know before we started filming my day-to-day was knocking on people's doors sending out emails and ringing people up and trying to get investors literally asking for money, spent, you know, four months doing that. And that's a really difficult thing to do. Again, you're just strategizing all the time. Um, And then after that, doing post-production and editing and everything, it's just, again, um, a long process of, I don't know, every day presents a new challenge and every week presents a new problem that you didn't anticipate and you've just got to wade your way through it, fight your way through it. Um. It, but it's pretty. It's pretty consistent, and it's pretty. Um, it's pretty full on. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the the term rewarding making the movie because it's in a day to day sense. It's not. It's not rewarding, and it's not fun. It's just hard work, and stress and anxiety, and you're just getting. You're just trying to get to that goal, to that moment where you've finished it, and you can present it, and that's the reward. But the process. For me, I have found there's not a great deal of reward in the process itself, um, which has to, which I think for any filmmaker, they have to really, really ask themselves how much they really love filmmaking, and are they prepared to, are they prepared to sacrifice everything that it requires you to sacrifice? Because it is, it is very hard until you, until you've cracked it and you're given money and you're given the budgets and you're given the crew and the, you're given everything to go. You get a whole bunch of new stress, but when you're doing it at this kind of level and that kind of breaking through level, it's really, really tough. Really, really tough. Can't say I really want to do it again. I'm hoping I won't have to go through that process. It felt like a baptism of fire. Um, and um, I'm hoping my next film will be financed and, and, and a bit of a smoother ride. So in the post-production process, did you already have distribution? I, I know it's independently... Uh, being distributed but it's also being internationally distributed and as we said at the beginning you've done this amazing roadshow with the film once you did have the the private investment to turn it into a feature was what was the process of getting it uh, distributed and getting it on screens well right from the outset the um 
the, the people that jumped on board to help me take it from the short to the feature were the people that I was working on the, on the other feature trying to get that one off the ground, um, Odin's Eye. And they are a sales agency. And they came on board as the, both the sales agents for the film and the producers. And Odin's Eye, before we um, made the, the feature, they actually got uh, our Australian distributor, Pinnacle Films, um, he, he actually got them on board um, because we needed to get that in place before we could get our full financing because we needed to get the producers offset and it required us to have an Australian distributor already attached with a theatrical with, with, with plans for a theatrical release and then you qualify for the producer's offset. So we had to get all that in place before the film, before we even roll cameras. And that's what Odin's Eye did. And um, and then, of course, as the film came and it was almost completed and as it's been completed, they've been taking it around the world to film festivals and film markets, which is what they do, and they've been selling it. And, you know, they've been they've got a... a a deal with Germany. We've just sold it to the US, and we've got another five countries that are that are um, you know deals are being negotiated at the moment for the film, and that's all. Yeah, Odin's Eye um, as sales agents doing that. One of the things that stands out to me when I when I look at over your career, and even in just speaking to you, is the incredible patience you have with your craft. You know, we spoke about Twin Peaks. Uh, Sorry, we spoke about Twin Rivers as being something that was made over um, six years. We speak about Ben Hall as something that was made over two years. Uh, this kind and the other feature that you spent three years getting up. How significant is it for you to have a level of patience um, in terms of making a film? You know, Twin Rivers, you said, was made over weekends. Uh, ben Hall was made in this, you know, long drawn out sort of way because out of necessity. What how how important is that is that quality to have, do you think, as a as a um, as a young creative? Look, if you can have patience, you are go- it's going to be a lot easier for you. If that is a quality that you possess. I don't think I'm a patient person, uh, really. I'm not a patient person by nature. But I am very dog at a bone. And a lot of people say that about me. They say, you're like a dog at a bone. And I won't stop until I, you know, I've gotten through the bone, you know. Um, I think determine, determination and an unwillingness to give up, I think, is probably what I have not so much patience because I'm not patient. I get very frustrated at the time that it takes and how long it has taken to even get this far. So if you have patience, you're going to have a, a, a less anxious time. But like the man in the prison, sometimes you've got no choice but to be patient. You know, you can't get out of that prison yet. you just got to pace the cell and constantly think, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? And, uh, and really, you're, until you come up with the idea or you get that spark or someone gives you a hand and you crack the wall of the prison cell and you start digging your way out, it really doesn't matter if you're patient or you're not. You're still stuck in there. So you've just got to do what you can to, to get out and endure it. That's how I see it. I've always thought that filmmaking just it just requires a lot of – you just need to be extremely um, resistant. Um, I would often tell people that, again, another analogy is, you know, those competitions where who's the last one hanging on to the monkey bars. Um, so everyone just hangs on and you've, as a filmmaker, just got to just hang on. And, you know, so many – I see a lot of – I've had a lot of friends and – 
colleagues over the years that were all just like me, came out of school, you know, wanted to do animation and make films and straight out of film school. And we're all, you know, we're all sort of the same. And one by one, I saw them over the decades drop off and start doing other things because the filming, they couldn't get a break in filmmaking or whatever, and they just gave up. And I was was just the one that was still hanging on, going, no, I can do this. I'm going to get there one day. Somehow I'll do it. And I think that's probably a quality that um, I think every filmmaker really needs to have in, in this day and age in Australia, uh, the ability just to hang on no matter what. And if you can have patience while you do it, you you won't be as stressed. How do you see filmmaking in Australia? I find it funny when people say, I want to get a job in the film industry because there is no industry in this country. <laughs> um, we have a television industry. We definitely have a TV industry in this country, but we don't have a film industry. What we have is a bunch of individual filmmakers making film projects, but there's no industry. There's not a sustainable um, industry like, you know, say the shoe industry or the car industry. You know, they, they're independent. They make their product. They sell it. They make a profit. They make more and they grow. That's an industry. We don't have that in Australia. We've got just this sort of shotgun scattered group of filmmakers out there just scrambling, scrambling for the scraps of government finance funding and international money and, and co-production money. And, and, you know, most filmmakers will spend seven years cobbling together this one film and then they'll, then they'll make it, release it. It'll probably fall over and not make its money back or what it will just disappear or whatever it will happen. And then they, they, they jump back on the, on the hamster wheel again for seven years and try to get this other film up. There's no industry like there is in America where they have, you know, that, you know, 20th Century Fox doesn't need to go to the, you know, to the film corporation to try to get a grant to help get some money on the back end to help them get a film to the finish line. They've got investors, they're making a product. And that's my biggest gripe with the Australian industry. There's the lack of the industry. And that is something that I really want to, you know, there's no companies, no studios here that, Filmmakers like myself can walk in and have a meeting and pitch a script to a bunch of executives and, and you know, they look at their slate coming up and they look at my film and then they, you know, there's nothing like that in Australia, which is why so many Australian filmmakers, directors and all that all go offshore. All we've got is this sort of hodgepodge group of, you know, government film font bodies that seem to have their own agenda and, and it's and their own people they like to finance and, you know, and, and, and everyone's after it. Everyone's after the money that, that they're handing out and it's not a lot. But everyone from the from the lowest low filmmaker like me, right up to the to the to the Baz Luhrmanns, they're all after the same money, and inevitably the favourites are going to get it. You know the, the you know the horse the horses that have got you know that have won races before they're going to get bet on, and it's not the little people. It's really really hard. There's, and uh, there's no industry, and that for me is the biggest problem with being a filmmaker in Australia, and the most frustrating thing for me, and and the one thing that I actually want to change. And if I ever get the opportunity, I want to create that studio. I want to bankroll that studio and be the person that puts my own money up and goes, right, let's start a let's start a sustainable industry in this country that makes films, treats it like a business, makes product that people want to see, you know, puts puts those profits back into the company, makes more films. And, you know, and we get filmmakers coming to us and, and, we, and we get films make just running like a studio. And that's something that I really hope I get the opportunity to do one day rather than just living on this sort of insane cycle of, you know, seven years between each film project, which is sadly the curse of many Australian filmmakers. 
I suppose, as you say, there's such limited money and the risk factor is so high that the people who are distributing the money want to minimize the potential loss as much as possible. So they're always going to go with the tried and true. And whilst that may seem like a wise idea in the short term, I suppose what you're alluding to is the fact that there's never any growth in the industry then and there's never, the next generation is never really nurtured. It's only, you know, it's people who kind of fluke it through. There's no, there's nothing deliberate really about when the next generation steps up at the moment. It's it's kind of, you know, you need to make a short or a feature that does an international festival circuit before people will even consider that you might be worthy of the, the limited amounts of government money that are available. Um, yeah. Sim- simply because then it gives them something to hang their hat on. Um, but there's no of question. Course. There's no question, as you say, of the talent that's available in Australia. and it, And it does feel like... Uh, it's a shame that so many people feel the need to move abroad so that they don't have that kind of seven-year itch between um, between projects. But, I mean, do you feel as though it's something that can be changed or is it just a, a, a product of the fact that Australia, you know, on a global scale has a very small um, uh, population? Uh, perhaps it's it's not as artistic a population. I mean, if you look at compare it to America, where which is kind of the holy grail, you know, is it possible to grow an industry in Australia like what they would have in Europe or America? I think it is. We just got to change our. Well, you need someone who just doesn't have the attitude that the funding bodies have. We've got to stop making Australian films. We've just got to start making films, just films, films that have appeal to international markets that you make it and the americans go oh i know what that is that feels familiar that feels fun as europeans will we've got to stop treating mainstream and commercial as dirty words we've got to start um looking at films in a way that it's you know they're not there just for art they're a business and you've got to merge the two and hollywood figured out how to do that sometimes not great but sometimes but sometimes they did it wonderfully, like Star Wars, the original Star Wars and so on. Beautiful blend of art and and, um, and commercial. And, of course, we can do that. We've got the talent. We've got the people. We've got the facilities. We've got everything we need in this country. Uh, all we need is uh, the, pro- the right scripts, the right projects, and all of that can be nurtured and created and found. Um, it just needs to be bankrolled, and you just need the right people pulling the strings and to stop treating, um, you know, Australian films like Australian films. We're just going to need to make international films or films with international appeal. And we need to start getting the budgets to um, to compete with American content. You know, we don't need to get, you know, $200 million and make, you know, Iron Man movies. But, you know, you do a hell of a lot these days with a, you know, with a small budget and make very, very viable commercial projects on smaller budgets. So I think absolutely it's something that can be done if, if the right person and you get the right kickoff I absolutely believe it can be done in this country. No doubt in my mind it can happen. It's definitely something I'm going to I'm going to always keep an eye out and see if I can ever get that opportunity to to kick start it. So it's not just you know so I don't have to struggle anymore. And also so many other people coming up don't have to struggle anymore because I see it uh, everywhere in Australia. I see so many filmmakers like myself or people that are where I was 10 years ago and and they talk to me and tell me what they're experiencing and and I you know my heart bleeds for them because I know what's the next 10 years is in store for them and I know how hard it's going to be for them and you know sometimes I 
when I just tell them, look, why don't you just bail? Like, this is, a, this is hard. How much do you really love it? Because I'm telling you, it's going to be tough. And as Rolf Tahir once said, as about 10 years ago when I was, he was helping me cut um, Twin Rivers and, you know, I was wet behind the ears, green and keen. And I said, so, so Rolf, you know, what does it take uh, to be a filmmaker? You know, how do I make it as a filmmaker? You know, he sort of just very pointedly thought about it for a moment and he said, you have to have a little bit of insanity. And um, I sort of thought, oh, that's an unusual answer. But I think now I think that's actually a really true. There has to be almost an insanity to your determination and your an insanity to to stick at it and just you know no matter what, nah, you're gonna you're gonna be a filmmaker. And uh, I think it's that kind of drive is the only way you're gonna get through. And it certainly was the only way I got through Ben Hall. There's a great Michael J. Fox quote. Uh, when uh, when someone asked him about being an actor, and he said, "We're all here because we're not all there." Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> we, yeah, you, you're not quite all there. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's an, it's. It, I was speaking to a friend the other day. I was driving up to New South Wales, showing Ben Hall to some other places. Just to came back, and I had a friend with me, and we were both who, who was a struggling actor facing a lot of the same problems that I have as a director, except as an actor. And he just came back to the, the quote of, from Rocky, you know, it doesn't matter how much you can, how much you can stand being hit. It's if you can keep getting up after every hit, that's what it's like. It's like just being hit constantly and you, you're out for the count. You want to quit. You want to give up. You want to do something else. You want to, you know, I've had days where I wished I would never, never even wanted to be a filmmaker because it was just too hard. I couldn't handle it anymore, but you just, you know, you brush it off and then you just stand back up, keep going, boom, hit down again, keep going. And that's really what it's like. How, how often can you get hit and get back up? And, you know, it, it, it still happens. I still feel exactly the same now, even with Ben Hall made and, and out there. There's a lot of disappointments and, and um, frustrations, even with the release of Ben Hall. And, you know, that to me, I'm still being punched. And I still have to, you know, in the morning, get up and go, right, am I going to, Am I going to quit? Am I going to be beat? Or am I going to keep going? That's what it is. How often can you get back up being hit? How often can you keep planning another escape and digging another tunnel, even though all your other tunnels that you started digging got collapsed or, you know, caught out? I think that's a really inspiring way to round out this conversation. It's been a real pleasure connecting and speaking with you, Matt. Um, what 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 next for uh, for the legend of Ben Hall and where can people out there... Uh, who are keen to to watch it? Where can they check it out? They can, it, depending on where they are in Australia. There are uh, a few screenings uh, around Australia that are popping up in cinemas. So there is still uh, the month the month of March in which to catch it at uh, various cinemas around the country. Uh, jump on our Facebook site and have a look at our events page for those details. And it comes out on Blu-ray, DVD, and on demand, and you know uh, iTunes and all that. Uh, that rolls out um, at the end of March. Awesome. We'll, so we'll post all that on the uh, on the coming up next Facebook page as well, so that people can have access to that. Uh, what 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 next in in the uh, in the Ben Hall legacy? Uh, I uh, I noted a little bit ago that you made a comment about the next couple of installments. Yes. Well, um, I'm in the process of uh, uh, polishing off the scripts for two more um, films in this series. Um, ben Hall was always. For me, a, a, a part of a, a trilogy, uh, of which Ben Hall is the third film 
in the trilogy. Uh, and I'm going to be going back and making, uh, I want to go back and make the, the next two installments, which are about different Bushranger characters, although Ben Hall is in those movies. Um, they are about different protagonists and t- collectively the three form a, a saga of the New South Wales Bushrangers of the 1860s. So I feel like I've really only just scraped the surface with, with Ben Hall. There's um, a lot more history, a lot more fascinating characters and stories to come. And um, I'm very, w- working very hard to ensure that these become a trilogy of movies. And, you know, that's certainly something that's never been done before in Australia. So uh, this year I'm, I'm, I'm getting back up again to um, get back into the, into the private investment um, arena and um, start swinging and punching and getting punched in, in that realm. Um, to try to get those off the ground. <laughs> you make it sound like such a masochistic act, um, which I suppose <laughs> I suppose on one level it is. It's just a constant, uh, constant fight. I I will uh, I will definitely be keeping my eyes peeled and and uh, and uh, greatly anticipating seeing the progress of uh, of this trilogy. Um, and I and I and I really hope that um, you don't get too many black eyes in the process. Um, I've got to finish by asking you. Uh, the one question that I ask every guest to round out the conversation, and that question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Um, probably um, a dog. Get me around <laughs> a dog, and I will become very, very silly. Very, very silly. What, 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 would, what do you do when you're around a dog? Uh, I talk to them I, a lot. Um, play or play with them. I just turn into a big kid and um, behave in very strange and unusual ways, and um, put on strange voices and have com- fake conversations, all sorts of things. So, yeah, I just uh, yeah, get me around a get me around a dog and uh, and I'm in a very happy place. What do you think about the the whole concept of giving a dog a human name as opposed to kind of like a novelty name? Are you more of a are you more on the side of giving a, na- a dog a name like Joshua or a name like Rex? Uh, well, no, that's a good question. Well, m- all my dog names have been sort of somewhere right in the middle. So, you know, I had a dog called Gibson, and I had a dog, and now my dog is Hugo, and another dog of mine was Jack. So I think they're bordering probably more closer to the human names uh, than they are the the uh, the novelty names like. Um, you know, fluffy or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, um, I'm definitely, um, I, I think I err on the side of human names with dogs. And, um, yeah, uh, dogs in my home get treated, yeah, kind of like people. They get a lot of human, uh, human rights and human, human privileges. But no eating at the dinner table. Thank you so much, Matt. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me.